like you mentioned at the beginning here, you know, whenever anybody tries to talk about the truth, the reality, there's these accusations of Islamophobia, racism, xenophobia, blah, blah, blah. Like nobody wants to have the conversation that needs to be had. Like women are being covered in body bags in Afghanistan. They're not being allowed to go to school. And the response is, yeah, but if that's their culture. Hey, everybody, you're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. So I took a bit of a hiatus. I had a second baby and I've been just enjoying all of those snuggles. So that is where I have been and why I have not updated. Um, I'm holding a bunch of episodes kind of in queue right now. They're going to all kind of drop at the same time, but this episode was time sensitive and felt very important. So I kind of wanted to push it ahead of the line and put it out while everything else is being recorded and organized. My guest today is Yasmin Mohammed. She is an author. Her book is titled Unveiled. She's an activist, public speaker, and real trailblazer, really a real fearless woman, um, one that I admire greatly. And as I mentioned in the intro of this podcast, I was waiting to have this conversation because I was really nervous about having it. I was nervous about the backlash and I saw what was happening in Iran and the real bravery that these women are are doing um, in order to get their rights and their their autonomy. And I'm like, well, if they can do that, I can have a conversation. So please help me welcome Yasmin Mohammed. And please, if you like this conversation, share it on social media, share it with your friends, um, leave reviews, because I really think it's an important one and probably one of the most important conversations I've had in a while. So please enjoy. Well, Yasmin, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, It is a topic I've been kind of wanting to dive into for a while, but honestly was really nervous to. We have been following each other on Twitter for a while, and I would always kind of like peek my head in to see what you were up to. And I was like, holy cow, that is a fierce and brave woman. And I just felt like I wasn't ready. And then with recent current events, I was like, we kind of have to get get into this topic. We get into a lot of other important ones and I've never shied away. So I didn't want to shy away from this one because it made me nervous. I kind of feel like that's why we need to have the conversation and we have to ask, is there so much fear surrounding the topic um, around Islam and hijabs and women's autonomy? So I guess I know you've gotten into your story on a lot of podcasts, but my listeners might not be familiar. So if you're comfortable, I'd love to kind of get into your story and then kind of track to where we are today. Okay, great. I will get into that. But before I do, I just want to say thank you for your bravery, for reaching out and for choosing to talk about this topic, even though you know that there is so much fear surrounding it. Like you said, there could be so much backlash. And also, just like you said, that's exactly the reason why we need to speak out because the people that are silencing us would rather we didn't. And, you know, this is why me and my, you know, colleagues, we always say terrorism works. Terrorism is successful. If you, you know, stab writers and if you kill journalists, then it encourages people to stay quiet. So thank you very much for not being silenced, for not allowing that to to um, to silence you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to get into my story. So I was born and raised in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and a lot of people are really surprised to find out that I was born and raised in the West. They always think like, oh, is your family like from Afghanistan? <laughs> like, I was shocked when I found <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. 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 So yeah, born and raised in Canada, but unfortunately, my story is very similar to women in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and so many other Muslim majority countries. You know, when I was young, I had a relatively normal childhood, because my mom wasn't a fundamentalist Muslim. She was raised just, you know, she's born and raised in Egypt. So she's kind of Muslim, like most people are Christian, just culturally. Um if you saw her wedding pictures, she literally looked like a Bond girl. She had a big, huge beehive. She had a, a mini dress for a wedding dress. She had like, you know, the big lashes, the whole 60s vibe was going on. And 
her and my dad moved to San Francisco during the whole peace love, you know, hippie era. And then, you know, it put a strain on their relationship and they ended up, well, my mom wanted to move to Canada so they could have like a quieter life. And they moved to Canada and their relationship fell apart at that point. Um, and so my mom was in Canada with three kids all alone. And she went looking for support, looking for community, looking for friendship. And not because she was religious, but just because she's Egyptian. and She's just looking for Arabic speaking people. She went to the mosque. And unfortunately, at the mosque, that's where she found this man who was religious. Um, he was already married, already had three kids. His first wife was actually a convert to Islam, a Canadian woman who'd converted. And he took my mom on as his second wife. Now, that doesn't mean he divorced his first wife, that, you know, in Islam, a man can have up to four wives. So my mom was his second wife. And there's a clear hierarchy between first wife and second wife. So first wife and first kids lived upstairs. We lived downstairs in the unfinished basement. And as soon as he entered our lives, it was like everything changed. Everything was forbidden. I was no longer allowed to have non-Muslim friends. Like up until then, my best friends were Chelsea and Lindsay. And I used to play Barbies with them all the time. Imagine telling like a five, six-year-old girl, you can't play Barbies with your best friends anymore. Like devastating. Can't mm -hmm. have birthdays. Can't ride a bike. Can't go swimming. Can't like everything. Everything was forbidden. Music. Mm -hmm. Music is haram. Music is forbidden. So all of those things were now forbidden. And all we were able to, all we were forced to do, all we could do was memorize the Quran and make sure we prayed five times a day. And that was my life. And I hated it. I hated him. I was angry at my mom for letting him into our lives. I couldn't believe that she was so subservient to him. Um, you know, like he'd break her records. I remember at one point he like took all of her records. My mom used to love country music. She had like Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and and he broke all her records and she just stood there and let him break her stuff. And it was such a moment for me, like, why are you letting him break your stuff? Like, why aren't you doing anything? And then he passes the records to us and says, break these because, you know, uh, music is from the devil. And that was our, that was the big change in my life. And then I went to Islamic school, got put in hijab. And, you know, eventually you stop fighting because you're a kid and these are, this is your family. And if you do fight, you get, you know, physically attacked. He was very, um, you know, verbally, psychologically and physically abusive um, and sexually abusive as well. So, um, yeah. And then my family, like my mom at... After I graduated from high school, she wanted, like, we went to Egypt on a family vacation and she just dropped, like, she just left me there and her and the rest, like, my brother and my sister all went home. And um, when I talked to her on the phone after, like, what, why am I here? Why did you leave me? And she's like, well, because if you're in a Muslim country and you're surrounded by Muslims, then you'll basically stop resisting. Like, she wanted me to stop having non-Muslim friends. She wanted me to stop wanting to watch non-Muslim movies and to listen to music and to basically live like everybody else around me. You know, she wanted me to stop resisting. She wanted me to just submit, which is the definition of the word Islam, submission. And when I was in Egypt, they tried to get me married off to my second cousin. And I was able to maneuver my way out of that and get back to Canada where she had chosen for me another man who she said, quote unquote, was strong enough to control me. And so Whoa. she chose a terrorist, um, a member of Al-Qaeda. And um, 
you know, it was the marriage, as you would imagine, right? Like all the abuses from my childhood just continued, uh, just with a different man. Uh, my mom standing, letting it happen the same way she did when I was a kid. There was really, you know, it was just a continuation. Um, and then I had a daughter with him. And that's what made me find the strength to get away from him to protect my daughter. I didn't want her to live the same life that I had just lived. And um, it, it through a series of like, you know, honestly, like the, if not for like the flutter of a butterfly's wing, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Like, so I, I detail it all in my book, but I was able to get myself and my daughter out of there and, um, go to university and start my life. I'd say over again, but it wasn't even over again. It was start my life for the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And so I stayed quiet for many years because the punishment for leaving Islam is execution. And that can be carried out by any believing Muslim. It doesn't have to be any kind of state authority or anything. So my mom had already threatened to kill me when I took off my hijab. So um, my daughter and I just moved a lot, changed our names, stayed as quiet as possible. I knew he was in prison in Egypt, so that was really good. I felt safe enough, but, you know, he's Al-Qaeda. He's a huge network. I didn't know who he was going to send after me, so we still had to be careful. Yeah, and then I finally, after about 15 years of leaving the religion, I finally decided to start writing my book, um, essentially because I saw that like you mentioned at the beginning here, you know, whenever anybody tries to talk about the truth, the reality, there's these accusations of Islamophobia, racism, xenophobia, blah, blah, blah. Like nobody wants to have the conversation that needs to be had. Like women are being covered in body bags in Afghanistan. They're not being allowed to go to school. And the response is, yeah, but that's their culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely insane. And so... You know, whenever anybody tried to speak up, I'd be hearing things like, oh, you're just a white American man. What do you know? Straight white male, this and that. And so I thought, well, here I am, you know, brown skinned Arab woman, and I'm going to say the same thing and um, make it harder for people to to scream me down. They still do. But, I was going to yeah. ask, do you feel like you get dismissed as often? So I've listened to your podcast with Sam Harris, and one of the things that I think is amazing about him is he doesn't let people tell him what conversations he can and can't have just because of who he is and his immutable characteristics. He's like, yes, I'm a straight white man, but I'm still allowed to be educated in these topics and have you know very well-rounded opinions. And I'm just curious – they don't have that weapon to knock you down. Like you said, like you're brown, you came from the religion. Um, what When they have this discourse with you, where, what is their rebuttal? Because they can't really straw man you like they can someone like me or someone like Sam Harris. They still find ways. Like they'll say, you're an Uncle Tom, you're a native informant. Like they tell on themselves really because they show their own bigotry, their own racism when they, when they talk to me that way. Um, I've actually been never in my life. I've been, have I been called a sand N word by somebody from the conservative right or like the supposed where the racists are. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've been called that from the left many times. Mm. So it's really interesting to see, you know, those that I keep on calling, you know, screaming out the word racism and, you know, trying to convince us all that they're anti-racists when in actuality, they're the ones who've been most viciously racist. They currently are the ones that are being most viciously racist. You can see that with any human being that speaks up who doesn't agree with what their ethnic group is supposed to agree with, you know, like they don't see us as individuals we're not allowed to be individuals. They're allowed to be individuals, but we're not allowed to be individuals. We have to be part of whatever group, you know what I mean? Like, like, 
like a group of animals in a zoo or something. And here in this cage, you see Arabs. And, you know, this is Arab women. They cover themselves in hijab and they are blah, blah, blah. It's like we're not little characters. We are individuals, too. We're human beings, too. And we're also entitled to our own opinions and our own values. We don't have to follow any kind of script that you think that we should follow because our family was born in country X or because our family follows religion X, you know? So why do you think it is that the narrative in the West has been kind of championing women that are in hijab or in burqas? Because when I was growing up and I was little, that was kind of the narrative. And I think maybe it came out of respect people's different religions and cultures, and these women want to be in them. But it's like, if the entire environment around you is threatening and you can literally be murdered for not wearing it, then how do you know how many women truly want to and that it's not compulsory? Even even if it's not by law, like, again, just that culture around you that's just so heavy, how can you authentically tell who does and who doesn't? Because you have to account for brainwashing just like you would in any, anything else. So I guess like why why that such a strong push? Like you see very prominent celebrities wearing hijab and it's quote out of respect. You see it on magazine covers. And what's interesting is isn't the whole theory behind it is to cover up a woman as much as you can because um, heaven forbid a, a, a man see her and sexualize her. But then if you're wearing makeup and on a cover of a magazine, isn't that kind of the same thing? Yeah, I mean, everything you said is like music to my ears. This is like, these are the questions. These are the these are the things that drive me crazy. Um, these are the questions I'd love answers to as well. You know, the same group of people who would, you know, be front and center screaming against seeing these kinds of things, you know, girls, Christian girls in fundamentalist cults, like Mormon girls, part of FLDS or something like that they would be screaming against these things, right? Um, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, yada, yada, yada. But when it comes from an Islamic context, suddenly their brain doesn't work anymore. Suddenly when they see, like I mentioned, little girls in Afghanistan not being allowed to go to school unless they're covered head to toe, they they say, that, oh, that's fine. We're okay with that. Little girls being forced into marriage when they're, nine, 10, sometimes seven, eight years old. Oh. oh, no, that's their culture. The wonderful thing about, you know, there's obviously this revolution in Iran is bloody, and it's atrocious. Mm -hmm. But it's been, you know, it's kind of like shoving in their faces, finally, like, these women are burning their hijabs in the streets in front of the IRGC who are standing there waiting with guns and bullets. They couldn't have made it more clear to the world how much they hate this thing that has been forced on their bodies their whole life. Mm -hmm. They couldn't be more clear to the world that this is not a choice, that it is forced upon them. And like you said, yes, it's brainwashing is a huge part of it. But also what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, fear. Mm -hmm. Women are afraid. It's not just in Saudi Arabia or in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Iraq where women are killed. They're killed in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in France, in Sweden, in Germany. You know, we're killed all over the world if we disobey. And, you know, it's not even... Like there was those two girls in, in Texas that were killed by their father that, that shot both his daughters. It was because they wore jeans. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like the, the, there was, um, you know, a young girl in Canada that was her father broke her nose, punched her in the face and broke her nose when he found out that she was texting with a boy. Um, another girl in Canada was killed by her father and her brother when she refused to wear the hijab. Like, we don't even have to do anything other than say, this is my body and I want to dress a certain way or I want to be friends with this person. Like, we don't have any kind of personal autonomy whatsoever. And if, you know, if, if the girl tries to, to do the most minuscule independent act, 
She's killed for it. And we see this happening all around us. I mean, I went to Islamic school. I've had like every summer there was girls that would go to Pakistan or go to Fiji or go to Indonesia or go to whatever and then not come back again. They were married off. They were killed. They're, you know, a bump in their family's backyard in Canada. I don't know. Nobody knows. But this is what we live with, right? Like that fear hanging over us. Everybody's heard of honor killings. Everybody's heard of honor violence. It's not so much a part of your like everyday life, though, like it is a part of your everyday life when you're growing up as a Muslim girl. You know that that you will be killed if your family finds out anything, whatever it is, that you took off your hijab when you went to school, that you have a boyfriend, um, that you took off the skirt and you decided to wear jeans instead, like the tiniest, stupidest, like infractions. So, um, yeah, so that's why they say, I like this hijab. It's my choice. I want to wear it. They don't want to be seen as, you know, they don't want the world to know that they're so disempowered that they can't even decide for themselves what to put on their own bodies. It's humiliating. I used to do that. I used to say, yeah, it's my choice when people ask me. Because what's the alternative? Yeah. You know, admit to them. Like, that's humiliating that I would never want. I wouldn't even admit that to myself. And then probably dangerous. I'm, I'm that this is my life, you know? And so you lie to yourself and you lie to others. And yeah, I mean, in, in when we talk about in the West, that's one thing and it's, it's difficult, but like you mentioned, there's even, there's countries where it's like law enforcement are even keeping these women in line as well, like religious police forces. So that's why you don't hear their voices. It's not because they like it and they're happy and they want to wear it. It's because they are threatened with death to keep their mouths shut or to say what needs to be said, what they were told to say. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, a couple things. So one of the main arguments is people say that this is such a small percentage and it doesn't accurately represent um, all Muslims and and Islam in general and that, you know, it these are the, the radicals. And then I was also I was watching something that said that's actually not the case based off of polling. It's something like conservatively 20 percent, which is a lot because it's like the number two or number number two religion in the world, number one religion in the world. So we are also acting like this group is a minority when it's absolutely not. And then if you take in that large number, even if it's just 20%, that is a lot of people with really bad, really dangerous ideas. And I don't know what the solution is. I hate like sitting here and talking about a problem and not having any idea, but I think it, it begins with being honest. Like I know that for sure. I'm, you know, I'm not a politician. I, I, don't know my way around law reformations or geopolitics. I'm just a concerned woman. And I see feminists that complain about something like, you know, being misgendered, but then I see someone get killed because of a tiny piece of hair and they don't speak up on that. So I'm like, well, we're living in the upside down right now. And all I can do is, I guess, have a conversation with someone like you who is a lot more informed than me. And hopefully, like you said, a butterfly flaps its wings and something can happen if we all collectively do this. Yes, absolutely. So true. And it's so meaningful. Like, I don't want you to diminish in any way the fact that you're doing this. Like, what what the Iranian women are saying is be our voice. That's the statement that they keep repeating. Be our voice, be our voice, be our voice. And we have all sorts of other hashtags like let us talk. They're all around the same sort of idea of like, we're trying to tell our stories. We're trying to tell you how we feel. We're trying to tell you our experiences, our authentic voices from a woman of color. Like, isn't this what you're supposed to value? Mm -hmm. And they, nobody wants to hear our voices. Nobody, they want to just follow this narrative that they have in their head of Islam as a religion of peace and whatever other kind of propaganda has been sold to them. They have bought it hook, line and sinker, and they do not want to let go of this. And they do not want to see the reality in front of their face. So it is so incredibly meaningful when somebody does listen to us and somebody does hear us and somebody does share our stories and share our voices. And, you know, the truth is, Candace, we get 
silenced so much from our own communities. As I just mentioned to you, like, you know, they want to kill us. They hate, like, women are hated already in this society, in this culture, in this religion. But a woman who speaks up against the patriarchy, a woman who speaks up against the dominant um, mainstream Muslim thought, oh man, like they would love nothing more than to slit our throats and to, to have us be quiet. And so because we're already being silenced on one end, to be silenced in the Western world, you know, where free speech and free expression are supposed to be so meaningful here too, like it, it to be silenced on both ends is, is devastating. It's really, it's not just a betrayal of us, like, but it's a betrayal of your own Western values too, you know, like it's a, it's a betrayal of, of, of feminism. It's a betrayal of freedom of speech. It's a betrayal of liberty. So it's, it's, it is so important to allow us to share our stories and to hear us when we, when we try to tell you our experiences. So, um, yeah, just, I guess, thank you again. Well, with that being said, so with all the protests that are happening, I saw the New York Times had an article that was saying, well, the real reason that these women are protesting and the underlying factors are because of an, a slipping economy. And they tried to kind of pivot it that way. So what would that, like, is that just ignorance or is are they trying to push a certain narrative? Because I don't feel like if a woman was wearing a headscarf, at least, and I'm in the South, right? I'm in North Carolina. I feel like if a woman is wearing a headscarf, no one is going to look twice at her. No one's going to treat her differently. Like that is such a small percent of really shitty people um, at least in this country. So the fear of uh, creating, I don't know, negative stereotype and trying to protect what is, I guess, I'm, I'm, we'll say a minority in this country or at least in this state, that doesn't seem honest. That doesn't seem like that could be why they're doing it. So do you have any idea why you see like these huge newspapers that are like, it's not really because of the hijab. It's not really because of um, the compulsory nature of, of controlling women's autonomy in these countries. That's not it. It's the economy. Yeah. So it's this propaganda, right? It's always the powerful, the like, you know, the, the, there's a lot of petrodollars and a lot of political power behind these Sharia countries, Islamic law, right? They don't want the truth to come out. Like the, this, the, this is what's happening in Iran right now is really bad for their business of trying to pretend that Islam is a religion of peace and that Muslim women love wearing the hijab and are happy to be wrapped up in body bags while they're still breathing. So when you see those kinds of headlines, that's them parroting the propaganda and it's really sad, but you can, you know, now everybody knows it wasn't like this, you know, just five, you know, 10 years ago, but now everybody knows that the media is a farce, that the media will say whatever the powerful ask them to say. And that's why social media is so helpful for us. Because you don't have to rely on the headlines that give you just, you know, whatever bullshit they want to give you, because we're sharing the videos ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have our own hashtags and we're telling you the truth. Um, Iran is an incredibly powerful country. They have like the fourth largest oil reserves on the planet with what's happening with Russia and, the, and Ukraine right now. Obviously, they're, you know, countries like America are looking for, you know, oil countries to, to make deals with. And that's been a huge part of the problem. Everybody's screaming at Biden, like, why aren't you doing anything? How are you still sitting down and having conversations with these murderers? Um, money. That's what it comes down to. Um, and because they're so powerful, they have, they have lobbies all around the world. You know, NIAC is a huge lobby in America. They paid into the campaigns of Biden, um, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, um, what's your vice president's name? Harris? Ka Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. <laughs> um, you know, they paid into all of these people's campaigns, right? They, they are massive and powerful. And so 
when they want the media to say a certain thing, the media will say a certain thing. If they want to deflect, I mean, it's the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's a, it's a hijab, which is an Islamic religious misogynist clothing that's forced on women based on Sharia law, which is Islamic law. Like, how can you possibly say this has nothing to do with Islam? It's literally everything to do with Islam. And most Iranian people are under the age of 30, and most of them are not Muslim because it's been shoved down their throat by this theocracy their entire life. And so, of course, they hate it. Um, and they don't want anything to do with it. In fact, there's one of the things I do is I work with this coalition called the Clarity Coalition, and we're a group of, you know, Muslims, ex-Muslims, Christians, Jews, atheists, like everybody. We're, we all come together and we um, join forces as a coalition against Islamist propaganda. And I was just at a conference last week where I was sitting with an imam um, from France. His name is Imam Hassan Shalgoumi. He's an imam that deals with death threats all the time because he speaks out against anti-Semitism. He speaks up for women's rights. They hate anything to do with Islam so much that this imam went to an Iran protest and he's trying to support the Iranians, but because he's dressed like imam, they're like an imam, right? They're like, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. And he's like, I support you. And they're like, get out. <laughs> they just want nothing to do with him because he's wearing the like imam garb and they just hate anything to do with religion. And I was like, you know, it's not personal, but you got to understand like they fucking hate your religion. And he's like, yeah, I, I understand. I get it. Um, and so it, it's like that. It is very much against Islam. And I would encourage you to look at the social media of actual Iranian people, listen to their voices. There's so many of them. There's so many Iranian Americans, Iranian Canadians, Iranians in France, Iranians in Belgium um, that are speaking up for their compatriots in Iran, because of course they keep shutting down the internet over there. Um, and they're telling the truth. So listen to their voices. Just forget like New York Times or whatever else, you know, legacy media that we used to think were telling us the truth. They're not. They're telling us whatever their lobbyists want us to hear. Um, but luckily with social media now, we can share our own stories. It's almost like we, we have some foresight that we can tap into. So you were saying the internet's getting shut off over there. And then I saw some people were smuggling Starlink satellites in, in yeah. order to get internet, which is incredible. So that's kind of like the decentralization of internet, which um, it's always been like these huge moguls and monopolies that have owned that. And then decentralization of information, which is social media now. So we used to have like three networks or maybe even two you know, and then it kind of all spikes out after that. But now we have social media. And you're like, no, this this young woman lives there. This is her story. She's live streaming it. There is no misinterpretation. So that's mm -hmm. kind of, um, I don't know, the beautiful thing about where I see the future going is like these really big inflated things starting to get broken down. And I think that's the same with a lot of religion too. Like we've had, yeah. you know, a handful of religions and now people are kind of creating like their own beliefs and like doing the research themselves or, you know, meditating themselves or maybe being agnostic or atheist or whatever it is but it's like you get to choose you can like custom curate the life that you want and I'm I'm hoping that the women over there have that opportunity because I did and I think you've brought this up and so have so many people it's this idea that this moral relativism and it's good for this is well this is fine for me and that's fine for them because they're over there and I've heard you say well if this if this little girl wasn't brown, if she was, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, and she was Christian and they were doing this, would this still be okay? And I do, I wish I wrote the statistics down, but it was something, uh, it was alarming. And I'm sure someone else could um, look this up unless you might know, I need a producer for this. But um, the amount of young girls that go to the hospital in Western countries for FGM. And I mean, I get goosebumps. Um, like that's, horrifying and that's clearly illegal in the countries that it's happening but no one's doing anything because we have this this moral relativism we're like we're like that's their culture like no who, who 
are we to pretend <laughs> that that's not okay? That's not universally wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have those numbers, like a rough number or no? I, I was just watching it yesterday. I saw a statistic once that was so insane. I almost, I like, I couldn't believe it, but it was like once every hour in the UK. Whoa. Yeah. And what's important to note too, is that those are only the girls that have complications. Those, the girls that have complications are the ones that end up going to the doctor, end up going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. That doesn't even give you the numbers of girls that it has happened to. Um, now, chances are most of the girls would have complications because this is just being done by, you know, some random woman with a razor blade. Um, so it's not like it's not that it would make it any, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like this, you know, it's not like I'm advocating for it to be medicalized and sterilized, you know, what I mean? not. Um, but, but I'm saying that it, the truth is it's being done just by random women with razor blades. And so the girls do end up with complications and the ones that end up coming back to their countries, like in the West, those are the girls that could end up getting um, medical support. And then, like you said, their families aren't prosecuted for this. Their families are given pamphlets to educate them. You think they didn't know that taking a razor blade to their daughter's genital was a bad idea? You think that, mm -hmm. that they need a pamphlet to explain that to them? Like, you don't think that they knew what they were doing? Like, it's, it's so insulting. It really is so insulting. And that's when I was saying, like, if a, if a blonde-haired, blue-eyed couple decided that they are going to cut off their daughter's clitoris with a razor blade, nobody would be saying, well, they just need a pamphlet. They didn't Absolutely. know what they were doing. Like we would never think that they were so dumb as to not realize what they were doing. We would, we would give them at least the benefit of, you know, basic adult human understanding that what they're doing is a vicious act, but they're doing it because they truly believe that it's the right thing to do. Um, and I'm going to go back to something that Sam Harris talked about before as well, because I think it's such a great analogy where he said, um, you know, we're so keen to like immediately make all of these excuses, like to say things like, oh, these parents didn't know what they were doing. Oh, they didn't understand. Um, you know, but if a, if a Jehovah's Witness couple decided not to give a blood transfusion to their little girl, knowing that she would die if she didn't get a blood transfusion and they still decided not to do it we would understand the thought process there. We would know, okay, well, they are so brainwashed into their ideology that they have actually put their ideology above the health and the life of their own daughter. We know that. We can see that. We understand that. But when it comes to somebody Muslim doing something similar we have all of these excuses and like you said, all of this relativism, whether it's moral relativism or cultural relativism, um, which is just a fancy way of saying bigotry, you know, bigotry of low expectations is a, is a phrase that, um, that George Bush Jr. said at one point, And it was like, it's so perfect. That's exactly what it is. It's the bigotry of low expectations. They look at, Arabs or Muslims and they're like, oh, they're just poor little brown folk. They don't they don't know any better. Let's just give them an educational pamphlet. No, you put them in prison and you let the rest of their community know that this is what happens when you mutilate your daughter's genitals. And that's a deterrent. A pamphlet is not a deterrent. And it also shows us exactly how cheap these girls are to whether it's, you know, British society, Canadian society, American society, any society that's not willing to prosecute these parents and to come down hard with them, you know, is saying, you know, that they don't really value the life of this girl, that she's really not that important. And the fact that she's damaged for life is, you know, 
too bad, so sad. She happened to have been born in the wrong family from the wrong religion and the wrong culture. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, too, is one of the talking points that gets repeated over and over is that um, Islam is a religion of peace and love. And I don't know if you've heard uh, Professor Gad Saad speak on this. He had a really good episode with um, Masi. What was her name? Masi Alinejad. No, the one I listened to was um, uh, what something Bin Laden. Her oh, Noor, Noor Bin Noor. Laden. Yeah. yeah, it was great. It was probably two years ago now, but it was a really great episode. And I guess he also is Arabic, like he speaks Arabic, yeah. and he can read it for what it is. And he was breaking down points in um, in the Quran. And he's like, no, it verbatim says this. And it is not that it's it's people that choose to live peacefully and kind of take this religion into an enlightenment that the majority um, of other religions have gone through. So, you know, obviously in the Bible, it says, you know, gay people are the worst thing ever and you're going to go to hell forever and um, it's okay to have slaves. Obviously, you would be very hard pressed to find a Christian that's like, oh yeah, we should hold on to that because it's in the book. They're like, no, yeah. that's wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. Let's, um, you know, have that enlightenment era for our religion. I'm still a Christian, but I'm not going to practice these things. And I'd imagine that's, you know, most Muslims. It's like, okay, well, we're gonna not inla- not most. It, not it, most. There, there's a huge discrepancy there between like the amount of Christians that don't follow their book verbatim, okay. like they're not fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that percentage is like your fundamentalists are much smaller than your mainstream Christians who are just nominally Christian. Um, whereas with with the Muslim population, you flip that around. Okay. So the, the majority of them are living in Muslim majority countries, living under Islamic law, being educated um, with Islamic education. Like it's it, they're they're immersed in it. Mm. Those Muslims who are living in the West, uh, America, Britain, Canada, yada, yada, they have the ability, the freedom to not practice their religion uh, like you said, they can choose to practice whatever parts of their religion they want to practice Got and it. put whatever other parts they don't want to practice to the side because they're living in free countries that allow them to do that. Okay. No, that makes sense because now I'm remembering another poll. I was like trying to watch as much information as I could. So I came into this as informed as possible, but it was when they had done a poll when I believe a cartoonist was murdered. Um, over in the UK. And it was something like 80% of people polled were like, yeah, that was right. That was justified. Murder was justified in that scenario. And they believe um, execution still for gays. Like that makes sense. Like it was just like these, obviously it's not legal there, but it was polling. Um, And that was kind of alarming to me because you have these debates around immigration and I don't know the solution. I know that no matter where you're coming from, you should be vetted somehow. Um, but then you have these people, that, and I'm sure it's the far, it's left, left. It's not, you know, I don't want to just generalize the entire left because I know that's not the case. But there is a portion of the left that is like absolute open borders, no screening. Mm-hmm. Like we should just open our borders to everyone with open arms. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense either because when you see these polls, that's pretty scary because that's not our beliefs in the West. Like we don't believe we believe in freedom of expression, um, freedom to love who you want to love, freedom um, over your body. Like these things are important to us. And if you have too many people coming in that don't believe those things, I worry how long until that shifts because nothing is permanent. You just it's the majority rules or the mob rules. So you do have to say like if you want to be here you have to agree on our values just on a basic level right respect for other people's um autonomy essentially i 100% agree with you um and there are some countries like austria and i think sweden as well that have like it's so nominal it's not even worth mentioning though like they have to do like 24 hours of civics education basically where they learn about like you mentioned, like, what are the values of this society that you are joining? Um, 
And so then they, they learn things about what is free speech, what is, you know, um, women's and men's equality, what is LGBT equality, what is, for, you know, whatever it is, like all of these different values that they are not familiar with um, and that they need to know these are the values of the country that you're entering. And if you do not agree or if you do not abide by these values, then you're not welcome to stay here. And right. that's the only way it can be done. It's that's the only solution. And, you know, there's a lot of like shortcuts, like, you know, uh, when Trump was in power, he was trying to do it like by country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really opposed to that because my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, is all about supporting people living in Muslim majority countries who are free thinkers and who are living amongst people that want to kill them. Um, so I know that there are, you can't go by country because we're individuals at the end of the day. And we have, it has to be an individual thing. And there's, there's no shortcut, unfortunately, I think. And people say things like, Oh, people can lie. They can pretend. First of all, (laughs) they don't even know to lie. (laughs) Like they don't even know, like it, it's, let me try and give it to you in a, like sort of Ilhan Omar, you know how she's done so many slip ups with anti-Semitism. She doesn't know that those are slip ups because that's so much a part of the narrative that she's heard her entire life. She doesn't even realize that it's anti-Semitic to use these tropes. Got it. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like that, like, sure, people can lie. Of course they can lie. They can try to pretend, but if you have a, a proper, interview where you talk to people and you ask them questions and you just dig a little deeper, it, it's going to, you're going to be able to tell, um, you know, where this person's thoughts are, what, what are their values? And that's what we have to do. We just have to do that before you invite people into your homes. Right. You have to let them know, like, this is, this is our home. This is how we live here. You're welcome, you know, you're welcome to join us, but this is, these are our values. Um, And I don't know another way that you could do it. I mean, unfortunately, what you mentioned about open borders, yes, it is a very small minority that do believe that, but the reality is that's happened already. That happened once Germany flung open its doors um, and let in millions of migrants from all over the world claiming to be from Syria. They don't stay in Germany, <laughs> right? There's open borders in Europe and now they're everywhere. And now all of Europe has a big problem on its hands. You, you let in people that didn't have anything keeping them at home, that they could just, they were mostly young men between the ages of like 18 and 25 or something like that, they'd have to be like unemployed, like nothing keeping them at home. These are just, these. this is the worst of society. The people that can just be like, yeah, I'm just going to go. Um, and if, if, it, if they actually were refugees from Syria, then of course, you know, we would want to help people as much as we can, especially Yazidis, you know, people taking being made into sex slaves or child soldiers, like, yes, let's open our doors and let these people in and give them refuge. But the problem was we opened the door and just let every random Tom, Dick and Harry in. And now nobody even knows which way is up. And that is the truth in so many different areas is which way is up. So there's this parallel. So when I was, um, trying to read about what was happening in Iran, I saw that there's morality police. And at first I was like, is that just what we're calling them? That just seems like a really weird position or department to existence. It's real. It is morality police. It almost feels like some people over here in the West are trying to implement that and try trying to have that institutionalized what's that like from your perspective when you see people kind of volunteering for something like that to me that is so absurd I just I can't wrap my mind around it so I'm just curious what your perspective is on that 
Um, you mean about the morality police in Iran or you're talking about here? Here, in like a sense, it's obviously not official like it is over there where you're getting arrested and, and murdered for it. But it's almost like you have people trying to facilitate that online in social spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So cancel culture, I guess, right. is what it's being commonly called here. Yeah, I have I have such um, a low threshold for that to the point that when you know in Canada people were really policing each other over COVID like crazy like can you lift up your mask please like this isn't exactly six feet like oh god don't let your dog touch my dog and it was just like insane and I said to my husband like this reminds me so much of being Muslim like it was that same kind of like policing that cult mentality of everybody like big brother watching all the time making sure that everybody is following the rules did you sanitize did you you know what I mean like it was just so overbearing so controlling and I feel the same way about any of these policing obviously policing of people's language Mm -hmm. I mean some of that policing of people's language is just It's just ridiculous. Like people are being canceled for using the word idiot because it's ableist. Like who's making these decisions and who is allowing this stuff? Like there was at one point, um, like Bed Bath & Beyond had these black pumpkins for Halloween, like black Mm jack-o'-lanterns. And they got a a random message from somebody saying, this is blackface on a pumpkin. Oh my gosh. And so they they issued an apology and they took it off the shelves. And I'm like, this is on you, Bed Bath & Beyond. This is on you for like listening to a stupid person and then feeding their stupidity, like it, empowering their stupidity by saying, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. We're going to take it off the shelves. Like, no, you don't. You do not respond like that to madness. And no. we've just been doing that for so long. People have been saying crazy things and we're just like nodding in approval like it what's crazy is that when we are we're trying to say very normal you know basic truths and nobody wants to listen to us so but but then other people are saying like the most insane things and everybody is smiling and nodding and appeasing them like it's this whole postmodernist era where there is no there is no truth is what people are trying to say and I feel like some people feel stupid when you they hear that and they're like oh well maybe there isn't and maybe I'm the dumb one like we we tend to blame ourselves and elevate others for some reason we we think other people are more educated or informed and that's not always the case like sometimes you do have an intuition for a reason and there are absolute universal truths and you can yeah. feel it in your gut and um, I think that we don't give that intuition enough respect at all. And for some reason, we've lost trust in ourselves. We, um, I saw this thing going around on Facebook. There was this police, police department that had their horses dress up like ghosts, and they got in trouble for that. They had to take it off of Facebook because they were saying it looks like the KKK. But it was like clearly they, the officers were just trying to have their horse dress up in a costume, and it was cute, and all these kids were taking pictures. But it's we, we can create the reality that we want to see. Like if you're looking for everything to be racist or homophobic or the boogeyman, you're going to find it. So you have to decide, do you want to live in this perpetual state of offense or do you Mm want to look at things lighter, happier, and truly like what tolerant was supposed to be, not like this so tolerant that we're intolerant because that's where we are now. Yes. Yes. That's, that's really well said. Yeah. We're so tolerant that we are intolerant. Absolutely. And I, I feel that way on a lot of issues, but I obviously feel that way on women's issues lately too, where, you know, I am a huge, like I will fully support um, men, women, trans women, trans men. But then it's like, well, then that means you have to also agree that women can have penises. Well, no. Well, that means you have to also agree that, you know, biological males can 
be put in prison with women. No, mm-hmm. or especially if they're sexual offenders. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're expected to be in one of these two extreme camps. We're not allowed to have nuance. We're not allowed to use our brain. Like you said, like, it's like, these are just supposed higher powers telling us these things. And then we're, we're just, we have to accept it. And if we're not, if we don't accept it, then we are exphobes, whether it's a somaphobe, transphobe, whatever. Phobe. And I completely reject that because I'm, I've always, you know, this is, this is what, ever since I started speaking out, I've always been the, the, the you know, the minority within the minority anyway, like I'm used to being attacked from all sides um, and people telling me that they, they think I'm hateful or whatever, because, you know, I'm sharing my own personal story or, or whatever it is. So it's kind of like I've, I've developed a thick skin to that. Um, and I also know that I am very, very open, you know, after being Muslim, after being part of literally a cult where you're told what to think and what to believe and what to you know, how to drink water, how to put on shoes, how to go to the bathroom, how to cut your toenails. There's no thinking involved. And so I have spent a lot of my life thinking and looking at things from every angle and not expecting to find the answers in a book, um, but in many books and in many different places and many different conversations. And always staying open to my opinion changing, depending on the evidence that's put in front of me. Um, And so it's so insulting (laughs) to me when somebody tries to convince me that I need to agree to some ridiculous statement that they're making when I've done my homework and I'm very clear about where I stand. I mean, sometimes it doesn't even have to be done my homework. Like women don't have penises. I can say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can ask well, not, a kid not, in preschool. Maybe now back on, now on Twitter, on Elon's Twitter, you can say that. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, you could not say that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, that's, that's not diminishing trans women in any way. Um, that's just saying trans women are trans women and women are women. And you know, a lot of people have now brought that into the Iran issue as well with like Iranian women can't opt out because I think it was like Eddie Izzard or I can't remember who won somebody, some popular um, musician from the 80s was saying something like, I put on heels and I'm a girl and I put on flats and I'm a boy. And I'm like, well, isn't that nice? You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, so I guess I was a boy today because I was wearing flats. You know, I had my converses on. So it you and and you can't you can't opt out of who you are. You know, Iranian women can't opt out of being a woman that suddenly the religious police or the morality police aren't going to throw them in prison over hijab. You know, like women have so many obstacles and so many atrocities that happen to us simply because we were born women and we have our own sex-based violence Mm -hmm. and it's incredibly like dehumanizing to diminish that and pretend that womanhood is just a feeling or just a pair of shoes. That has to be one of the worst things to hear from someone in your position is that, you know, sex and gender are social construct because I would be like, if it were that freaking simple, then all of these women wouldn't be in danger. All of these women would have a choice because they would wake up in the morning and say, well, I identify as a man or non-binary. So these rules don't apply to me. You can't put me in jail. It's, I mean, I'd be like, how dare you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't opt out of these things. That's like, why are we pretending that the sky isn't blue? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's insulting our intelligence. That has to be one of the most infuriating concepts from someone in your position, because again, it's not, we're not acknowledging that biology is real. Like, sure, your gender expression is absolutely a spectrum. 1000%. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. anyone that disagrees with that, like, they are 
bigoted, right? Like women mm-hmm. have to be hyper feminine. Exactly. Like absolutely not. You can be as butch as you want to be. Exactly. Um, but the fact that biology is real and that you are born man or woman and that's how you are going to die we just we need to agree on these basic pillars of reality otherwise how do we even begin to have a conversation beyond that if we can't agree on like the fundamental principles of like this is biology how do you how do you get into philosophical conversations and maybe that's the whole point Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like if you were to put a tinfoil hat on, like maybe that's the whole point is if we confuse people on all of the basics and they can't yeah. ele- ever elevate past and beyond that. It's very Orwellian, isn't it? It's very war is peace, you know, freedom of slavery. The thing that I see happening right now in Iran and with your with your story is like these young women who have a very real risk of um, violence and like a real consequence for, you know, your actions, your voice and telling your story is how, and I don't even know if there's a way to articulate this, but how would you tell someone else to like, to discover that within themselves, to find that fe- that fearlessness, um, to maybe find something that's like driving you to do it? Like, how do you get to a point where you can step out with consequence and say like, no, this, the sky is blue. This is my story and this is wrong. I think that the best way we can do that is just to lead by example, to continually be as, you know, to be brave, like to push past the fear and to still say what needs to be said and still do what needs to be done. And that will encourage others. It's hard to be at the pinpoint. It's hard to be in the, you know, the the first, um, you know, on the front lines, but the more of us that are out there, the safer it is for, for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, people don't realize how much each individual has power. And this is something that Gadsad has talked about quite a bit too. And I, I really appreciate him for, for saying this because he's often said like, I'm just a dude that just started to talk, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so are you, you're all just people and you can all just talk and, each one of us, you know, our voices matter. And, and I, and I think, yeah, that's all, that's all we can do. What you're doing here today, um, pushing past the fear and having me on and having this conversation and knowing that there's probably going to be backlash, but there's going to be a lot of seeds that have been planted as well. I mean, you mentioned my podcast with Sam Harris. I like no exaggeration. I got thousands of emails and I still get them because Every time he reposts it, I get thousands more um, of people telling me like, I really, you know, I felt it in my gut that something wasn't up. This didn't seem right. Seeing the hijab at the liberal woman's march just felt weird. Seeing Gloria Steinem standing up there with Linda Sarsour, you know, it didn't, it didn't jive. And reading your book or listening to your podcast, I, now that makes sense to me. And, you know, that's, that's what needed to happen. Like I needed to, to share my story, sort of be the whistleblower and, you know, it, it allows other people to speak up too and to say like, yeah, okay, I, I can see it from that perspective. And, and I'm so glad that, you know, you've helped me to be able to see it from that perspective. No, well, I love that you're using your voice. I love seeing a, a beautiful, fearless woman out there making a huge difference. Um, can you please tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media, where they can get your book, your podcast, plug away? Okay, great. <laughs> um, so I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all under Yasmin Muhammad. And I have an organization called Free Hearts, Free Minds, which supports free thinkers living in the Muslim majority world where they could be executed for the crime of not believing in Islam. And I also have a a podcast called Forgotten Feminists, where I speak to women who inspire me, women who have been through religious fundamentalism and come out the other side not always religious fundamentalism. I've also had a a woman from um, living under communist Russia um, and similar idea, you know, an ideology forced upon you where you have to say what needs to be said under threat of death. So women that have overcome 
And that is a, a great podcast to feel a motivated by these women and their stories and B to, you know, to get a sense of how common our stories are and how interwoven our stories are. People like to say, this is all culture, but you're going to hear stories from women in Denmark and Somalia in Kenya in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Canada and America. And we're all talking about the exact same thing because we all suffered under the same misogynist religion. Well, I'll make sure I have all of that in the show notes too for everyone. So if you want to check it out, thank you so much, Yasmin. And I hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As I mentioned, uh, it's going to be a little while until I drop all of my new episodes. I'm kind of trying to record like 10 and then doing a big release at one time. Um, But you can listen to past episodes. If you did enjoy this conversation, please share it with a friend, two, three, social media, leave a review. The more ears or eyes, the better. And I will see all of you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.